Today's New Testament scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It is found on page 2 of your bulletin. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that... uh, Every topic under the sun, your grace and truth speaks to. And we thank you for this time. Uh, We thank you for our city. We thank you for its service as the capital of this nation. And we thank you for placing us here at this time. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I said, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the topic of the Christian faith in an election year. And there'll actually be series at each of our congregations. Uh, They'll they'll be of a different uh, topic, but we've shared our notes with one another, and those sermons will be available. So you will have a total of nine sermons that you can listen to, and we're hoping that they'll agree a little bit together. And if you're someone here that's looking into the Christian faith, um, I hope this can be a window in to how Christians try to think about various topics, but more so a window into Christ, more importantly, himself. And I confess, I approach this topic with a healthy sense of weakness. One, I'm a pastor, not a pundit, and uh, I think it's smart to stay in my lane. But the second one is uh, there's no small amount of division. Always, it seems like, with this topic. So perhaps the measure of my success will be, in the end, I will have disappointed everyone. Uh, That way I will have been fair. And I'm calling this series Election Year Recall, uh, not in the typical sense of ousting a candidate, but rather, what does it mean to recall Christian faith in this season, in this time? And what does it mean, perhaps, to recall, to oust fear and cynicism or apathy? I don't know what it is you feel right now. It might depend on how long you've been here. Right? If you're new to D.C., you might be filled with optimism and energy. If you've lived here for decades and feel like, well, I've seen administrations come and go and my daily problems don't change, well, you might feel a little bit numb to it all. Or maybe if you've been doing this for a long, long time, well, you're just sort of going through the motions. And thinking about it in terms of faith, well, try to do that from time to time. So I hope this will be a good reflection period for all of us. And I think it's important for a couple reasons. One, 
The Christian faith teaches that government, state, is not, I'll repeat, not a necessary evil. God instituted, he constituted the state. And because he did, those that would say they're followers of God have an obligation, have a service, a citizenship in some capacity. Second of all, the reason I think it's worth our doing is because we talk a lot about theology of place in this church, believing that God and the Christian faith particularly uh, talk about a fleshed-out faith that is in the world. In some ways, we could say recalling our state literally is how do we recall where we are in Washington, D.C.? How do we love this city? We're called to know and love. But lastly, self-awareness. I was reminded of a friend of mine when he was getting ordained into the Christian ministry, and his mentor said to him, there are two things that should always humble you. The first is your gifts, and the second is your sin. And I think the same thing is true. There is potentially great good for a group of people that understand and pursue God's idea of the state. But there also, conversely, is potentially great harm that can occur. And so we do well to be sober, to be self-aware as we go into this season. And so the three topics I plan to hit over these three weeks will be uh, recalling our security. What does it mean in terms of our trust and hope? Recalling our allegiance, our duty, loyalty, and then tonight recalling our state. And by state, I mean the state of our heart, but also our position. What does it mean to be positioned in Christ? And how does that affect the way we think about things? So we'll look at the, the uh, recalling our state through the reality and the results of our state. Now, if I asked you, what rules the state of your heart, your emotions, your passions, what would you say? Maybe it would be the newspaper, my family, my health. Who's elected to office? If I use the language of this passage, I might say, what what baptism defines you? And let me explain what I mean. Earlier, when we baptized these two lovely children, I said that baptism is really about God's obligation to us, his obligation to fulfill his promises and be everything to us. But it's not just that. Baptism also symbolizes identification. We just basically had a public identification belonging ceremony. This is what's meant in the passage when it talks about faith in one Lord. The Father who is over all, the Son, the Spirit, the Trinitarian God, the Godhead, the triune God. Charles Marsh, who was the professor down at UVA, says, Baptism is... Is the sacrament that brings the person into the body of Christ, that's the church, which is, among other things, an alternative social world. 
I don't know if you think about baptism that way. Baptism is initiation into an alternative social world. A new and different society whereby we have new lens. Uh, My daughters both had a teacher who used to encourage them on a regular basis, put on your worldview glasses. Because she said, we all have lens. What's your lens? And that lens will affect how you look at everything. Education, pleasure, health care. In the present situation with the coronavirus and growing concern and fear, I was thinking back to the early church in the third century. In the third century, there was a great epidemic that was sweeping North Africa, Italy, and the western part of the Roman Empire. And uh, it was as many as 5,000 people a day were dying. And the bishop, Cyprian, encouraged Christians to care for the sick who were often abandoned in the streets. Why did they do that? Well, they had a lens that affected their view, quote-unquote, of health care. Because their great physician healed lepers. He moved toward very contagious people. But Rodney Stark, a historian, says there's something also interesting about that. You can track an increase in Christian conversion over those periods of epidemic. In the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, in the 6th century. Because how the church viewed that topic and cared. The same is true for politics. When we understand the relationship between baptism and identification, it opens up a door for us to understand politics differently. To understand that for many people, they are baptized into their political views. They are baptized into their political party. I've always denied the fact that Washington is not a religious place. It's one of the most religious places I've ever lived. Politics are the religion. The hope, the confidence for many, many, many people. Uh, Russ Whitfield, one of our pastors, uh, who is preaching on this, shared an email with Duke and I and said, the church is not to find itself at the center of left and right, a left and right political world, but finding its identity from the center of life in the triune God, right? That's the starting point. And there are two things I think that are always seeking to compromise that. Because we have to, if we're going to be honest, right? We have to uh, indict ourselves in this struggle. That's the healthiest thing we can do, right? And know that uh, for those of you that labor in this field directly or indirectly, I have immense respect for the struggle that you have to do every day in the noble work of the state, even when it doesn't feel noble. But there are two things I think that seek to water down Christian baptism, Christian identification that can help us to think through this stuff. The one is American civil religion replacing Christianity. And by American, American civil religion, I'm talking about that narrative we hear of the story of salvation and the story of the greatness of America being woven together. And I'm not laying at the, that at the feet of the current president because every 
State of the Union address I've ever heard, that narrative is present, right? It's America's greatness and God blessing. And I don't deny as well that God has shed his grace on thee, America. He has. Amen. He has been kind. But we have to acknowledge the two are different, right? Uh, Walter Brueggemann says, The crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has to do with giving up the faith and discipline of our baptism and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. See the concern there, right? What, what is our identity? Is it distinctively Christian? But the second, I think, danger is what I'll call a shortcut version to Christian identity. And that is to narrow Christian identity down to three or four issues. Whatever side you're on. And I, you know, I have had the privilege of serving and ministering in various places. You know, places where, you know, I remember being in Nashville in the early uh, 90s uh, when President Clinton was in office and Christians saying, you know, this is the devil incarnate. And then I remember being up at Harvard where I'd hear Christians say that George W. Bush was the devil incarnate. I'm being a little overdramatic, but you get the point. Christians, both sincere professing Christians, looking at these two sides, and I think it's because they have shortcutted baptism identity down to just a couple issues. And I've seen this um, work its way out. As I've witnessed it, I'll give you one example in the white evangelical and the African-American church. This interesting thing that has happened where on the white evangelical side, they would look at the African-American church and say, well, you know, if you're really a faithful body, you're going to be outspoken about abortion. So white evangelicals would be puzzled why African-American churches weren't more outspoken about a a rather pro-life, right? At the same time, the African-American church would look over at the white evangelical church and say, well, gee, if you were really a faithful body, you would care about incarceration rates and the murders of our sons, right? Another pro-life issue. And so, or, or in my world of pastors, you'd have PCA pastors, and I've heard many say, I don't understand why African-American pastors are so political, But an African-American pastor would say, have you ever thought about the luxury you have to not be political? Because you've enjoyed majority power. And so you have this situation going on that issues and subsets of issues become the primary identification point. I'm not saying they're not relevant to what Christians believe in their discipleship. But is that the sum total of what we're talking about here? Either one will water down the one spirit in the bond of peace. An early church father, Christostom, said, The purpose for which the spirit was given was to bring into unity all who remain separate by different ethnic and cultural divisions, young and old, rich and poor, women and men. And this is the critical question I'm putting before us. How do you understand your primary identity? Have you been baptized into Christ 
or have you been baptized into a competing loyalty? All of us have to ask that. But more so, do you understand that you need sincere, baptized Christians that believe differently from you to get a truly uh, wise and holistic view of politics? Do you understand that just your vantage point, which is going to be affected by culture, will never give you the view that you need of God's view of state? And even as I say that, it's going to be imperfect, right? Until God sets up his monarchy, not democracy, right? Monarchy. And I say that because if you've ever been tempted in this church to say, I'd rather go to a church where people vote and think like me, I would say that's the worst thing you could ever do. Because you will go to the church of the holy echo chamber. Right? It's such the good thing for you to be in community with people that are sincere baptized Christians that believe you are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Apostles' Creed, yet think this way. So let me move us on. That's the reality of our state, but the result of our state. How does the position and state affect things? And I will say it is a unity that results in a different mindset, a unity that results in humility, empathy, and charity. Let's unpack that for a few minutes. The Apostle Paul says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one faith, or rather one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times in two verses, what word did you hear? One. And then you heard the word unity. So Paul is emphasizing something here, right? With respect to identification and baptism. A distinct Christian view instead of a world view. This is, this is, this is the distinctive. And if you've, I've mentioned this before, but we, we need to be reminded of it. The big difference between the way the world approaches unity and the way Christians do is Christians understand they do not create unity. They do not create unity. If you think you can, you think you're God. The Christian faith would say our unity is actually founded on something more sure. It's the unity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the basis of our oneness. And so it really isn't that you and I need to meet across from each other around the negotiation table and hammer out what Christian unity looks like. Rather, we need to come to this table, the Lord's table, where the ground of it is the oneness of Christ who shed his blood for those that were very politically different than him. And that you and I come to this table and recover unity. That's what we're called to do. And I don't know about you, but it ought to uh, fill you with some hope. It ought to fill you with some optimism. Because of what's possible in light of God's unity. The worship that's centered, as we've done the whole time, around the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As we've sat together... And we have sang about who he is. 
and we hear the truth about the gospel. That Christ himself, the son of God himself, entered into our world and poured out his lifeblood for one people. One people. Not people with separate hopes. With one hope. And that changes the way we see one another. Someone forwarded me an article by the conservative David French, and the title caught my eye, Will Somebody Please Hate My Enemies For Me? And he he has an insightful point. He says, oftentimes Christians don't outright hate their enemies, but they kind of enjoy when other people do it for them. And it's a way that we can keep our hands clean, right? We can kind of stay one step removed, but at the same time get the results we want. Now, I want to be clear. Loving your enemy doesn't mean that we all agree, right? Unity is not uniformity. And that's actually a strength of democracy. Democracy was made for disagreement. In a totalitarian uh, regime, the, the state is going to be everything. The state, you know, there's three things God instituted, the church, the family, and the state. In the totalitarian regime, they're going to be all of it for you. Democracy says it's, it's going to leave room for you and I to disagree. Michael Ware, uh, or rather, I'll come back to that in a second, but here's the question. And we won't, again, until we're perfected in heaven, we're not going to have it all. So we've got to set our perspective. But this is my question. Do we have a unity that is deep and is substantial enough to even have the conversations we need to have? Do we possess that? Does the church possess it uniquely? Would it be something attractive that the culture hasn't seen? Michael Ware, who directed uh, faith-based outreach for President Obama, he's actually lecturing at the Trinity Forum tomorrow night. He said, people don't want to talk about politics because they hold it too closely. Right? The truth is, like, this thing is creed to me. And so let's just leave it away. Yet, it ought to change the way we approach this. And that is the way that we move toward one another. In some ways, I'll be honest with you. My my concern about Christians moving toward the culture and being peacemakers on this issue is secondary. I think it's important. But right now, I, I don't know if the church knows how to do it. Like where everything starts is the church learning to have those conversations. And there's a state of our heart that we ought to be able to see signs of if if we've understood this unity. A godly virtue. Because you and I know it doesn't matter how right you are. The way that you prosecute your point makes all the difference, right? Right. Thomas Jefferson once remarked of George Washington, Washington errs as other men do, but he errs with integrity. You know? There's a way to err where your character is out front. It's first and foremost. And in fact, in a self-governing free society, virtue is even all the more critical because of those very things. It really has to show up. And this is what Christ, of course, calls his people to. But how does that happen among very hard, divisive issues among Christians? 
Uh, l- let me give you a, just a sampling, a summary of the questions and issues I've heard over the last eight years. I've been here for 16 and a half, but, you know, I've been alive longer than that. Um, and uh, here's uh, a typical conversation for those that voted for the last administration, the last president. For those that did that, they would get asked, how can you vote for an administration of someone who is not going to protect life, the unborn? How, you know, that, that, that is going to be uh, more liberal about that. Or someone that is going to turn a traditional view of marriage, thousands and thousands of years of marriage on its head. Or someone that potentially might restrict religious freedom. I'm not saying that occurred, but I'm, you know, had enough conversations about that. So you have people on one side asking that question, the folks that voted for the last administrators, but those who voted saying this, listen, I don't support those issues personally. But I also think there are other biblical issues, like justice, like care for the alien. And I also believe that character really sets a tone for a country. And so I felt like there was good evidence of humble, listening character, okay? Now let's fast forward. Folks that voted for the current administration and president, what have I heard? Well, how can you vote for someone who on record has been degrading toward women? Or how can you vote for someone who, after a prayer breakfast, uh, you know, lecture on loving your enemy, stands up and says, uh, I don't agree with that? Or how can you vote for someone who has made offensive remarks about people of other races but is unapologetic? And yet, sincere, baptized Christians would then respond and say, listen, I think all that stuff is terrible. But also, I think policies in the long run will be more impactful than the character of someone for eight years. Does anybody know how to solve this? Of course you don't. I don't either. But the fact is, this is the reality we're facing, right? So I want to say, let's put solution off the side here. Because I think we might be trying to solve the wrong thing. Instead, I want to point you to what we find here. I call them the low virtues. Verse 1 and 2. Humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Again, Church Father Chrysostom. Not in words only or even in deeds, but more so in the very manner and tone of your voice. And not meek toward one person and rude toward another, but humble toward everyone. In the pagan world, humility was distasteful. The one time we have Jesus describing himself, he describes himself with humility. I am humble, right? Lowly. Low virtues are what you see with Jesus to the point of the cross of Christ, right? Before society, God lifting up his glorious son who is worthy of all uh, acclaim and majesty and praise and calling him to increase unprecedented lowliness, to even be treated as a sinner. Philippians 2, Paul says, you have that mindset. So that's what you and I, that's our starting point for one another as baptized Christians. 
And one of the ways I think it shows up is in empathy. What's empathy? It's working hard to understand someone and feel someone. Not just to understand, but to feel why they feel it. And I wonder if we could make this commitment here. That we will commit not to text, tweet, or talk about it with our friendship group until we have sat down face-to-face with a Christian brother or sister with whom we disagree on a political issue? Could we make that commitment? I think it would make the world of difference. You know, to be worldly is basically to uh, lob, right? To lob grenades, I get frustrated even with the church, aside from politics, how non-covenantal we behave. Covenantal means that I am in relationship with you. You have a claim on me. I have a claim on you. More so, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, which means the way I'm going to disagree with you is very different than what we see in the culture where I take long shots a thousand miles away, where I basically just complain to my echo chamber about people. Could we, as a body of Christ, let's forget about the world. Let's forget about changing Washington, D.C. Let's just be this community, this family of God. Paul was willing to go to prison for this. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to do for the sake of unity? I gave you that little Lincoln quote where he said, if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Right? Something true about that. But the empathy leads to charity. And I'm rounding third here in closing. It leads to charity. Charity is, I give someone the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I, I'll vent for a second here. Again, Glenn? You know, so, you know. But, uh, you know, one of my uh, kind of, one of the things that can get me a little bit angry, flustered, is when, okay, you know, we're Presbyterians, in case you didn't know that. And Presbytery uh, means a region of churches. And that means that's my church, actually. That's my oversight. That's my court over me and my fellow ministers. And so when I have someone from a Presbytery way in California right about some issue that they kind of, you know, I heard a sermon, I wonder, something like that. And I just want to say, can you trust Presbyterianism? Can you trust that there is a group of people locally that I'm in covenant with that are watching me and holding me accountable? Charity means maybe I do that. Charity means that, you know, if someone you know, says something I think is really not Christian. And they say it once, well, maybe I just, okay, you know, maybe they just had a bad meal. I don't know what it is. If they repeat it over and over, okay, face to face. But what does it mean to be charitable with people? Uh, I was watching a little clip on uh, the HBO show Vice, which is a news show. And they were uh, interviewing a woman who is just like this incredible uh, conservative voting catalyst. 
And as they went around, they voted, they, they checked with some conservatives, and there's not one kind of conservative, right? Like, there's just not one sign of progressive. This is one kind of conservative. And they asked, what are the issues? And they listed the issues. And what I thought was so wonderful about it is they asked, and they didn't mock them. They just asked, right? And this, I think, is a mark of Christian people. They can say, tell me what you think. Sometimes I wonder, well, we'll get to fear next week. But I, I want to close with this. Uh, Pete Weiner and uh, Michael Gerson, uh, you know, both have worked in Republican White Houses. They're uh, longstanding uh, Washington voices and uh, sincere believers. They wrote a book a couple years ago called City of Man. And uh, I thought this was really wise, what they said. As you think about how do we begin to have the conversation, what's our frame of mind? They said, first of all, remember perspective. God doesn't need you to accomplish his purposes or win this argument. If you believe he does, you'll be aggressive and desperate. Right? So Presbyterians supposedly believe in God's sovereignty. And I will say, I've seen this happen in my little world with issues like predestination. All these arguments, you know. My first ten years of being, I thought, no, God needs me to do this. I'm going to persuade people that this is... And then at some point, I thought, oh, I guess I don't trust God's sovereignty. The second of all is community. Stay in relationship with, with those whom you respectfully disagree with. Notice what I said, not keep tabs on their Twitter account. Stay in relationship with them. That's what we have to do. And lastly, grace. Losing the right way and in the right spirit may be your greatest public witness. You know. That might be a surprising thing. Um, The goal is to win the relationship. Because ultimately, these things will pass, my friends. And you and I will be in heaven, Lord willing, with one another. Right? And the question will be, how did I treat the bride of Christ? How did I treat someone that is closer to me in reality than the closest family member or party member or best college friend. This is, I believe, our starting point. It's what God has given us. So let's now move to that table and find our unity. Father, we thank you for the gospel you've given us. We pray you would help us as we struggle. Uh, We pray that you would uh, help uh, our call to be local, even if our job is beyond local, that we would be faithful.